I just got talk screens on everyone. Little grandma came in, Coke positive. As an in, <laughs> as an intern, a couple a couple slipped by me until my my upper years. Like that person's definitely on cocaine. I'm like, oh. <laughs> Eventually, see like one or two positive, just order on everyone. Yeah, but they have such kind eyes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hi. The internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews Not today. to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Brigham hey. and Dr. Paul Williams. Dr. Watto. Tonight, we <laughs> will be talking about hypertensive crisis, aka hypertensive urgency versus emergency, aka malignant hypertension. Aka call your internist. Yes. Very high yield topic. I think there's a lot of confusion surrounding this, certainly among our emergency department colleagues, no offense. So we think it's very important to go through this and try to try to give you some clinical pearls that you could use, maybe discharge more people from the office or from the emergency room, and hopefully treat this condition more safely. Right, Paul? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm glad I, I agree with Paul. Uh, Paul, did you volunteer for us to uh, ask you some uh, some quick questions before we start? No, I, I don't recall actually doing that. No, okay, it might be a headache. <laughs> so, Paul, what's what's a great book? Because I want to get a book recommendation on every show from now, just to stick it on, stick it to Stuart. What what is a great book that has helped you in your career or in life? Define great book uh, for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, gosh, I was going to go with Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian, but that has not helped me in life or my career. Um, but it is a great book, so I think that's what I'm sticking with. That book is horribly depressing. I, I, it did not help. It helped me stop reading it and uh, pick up <laughs> pick up a much happier book. Or Horton Hears a Who, also a classic. All right, I'll take that. What? What is your favorite medical app that you use? I know you're a little bit older than Stuart and I, but uh, what I imagine mm. you use apps once in a while. Like in Hippocrates, what do you use? Uh, what's on your phone? What, what do you use for patient care? Probably the one I use most often, um, in all honesty, is the, the CVD risk calculator. It's probably the one app I actually use routinely for patient care. And then Hippocrates is one that I, I go to just because I think I've had it for a decade now, and I've just been too lazy to upgrade or look for something else because it, it just seems to do the job. Okay. So a raging endorsement for Hippocrates. They can start paying us any time now. <laughs> Excellent. I yeah, I will certainly accept money. Isn't that app free? Well, uh, it is. you oh, okay. you can upgrade and you can get you, you you can get some clinical information as well, more than just the the medications if oh, if you pay. I didn't know that. But it is helpful, pill pictures and whatnot. Good. What hobby or activity outside medicine are you are you pursuing for your own physician wellness? Uh, I've actually, I thought I'd try exercising because I've heard it's important. Um, so I've actually been running fairly recently. Um, and I, I do a fair amount of actual recreational reading and not reading about medicine, which are the two things I used to primarily stay sane. Where do you, where should we start here, Paul, for, for hypertensive crisis? What do you think when someone is approaching this topic, and we're really going to focus mostly on the outpatient setting and probably the emergency department here, what do you think is the most important starting point? It's so in term, so for hypertensive crisis, I think the starting point is determining is, is the triage. So d does this person need to go to the ER? Does this person need to be admitted to the hospital? And sort of, I think, making that initial determination. And then from there, obviously, is the management. But I think just the very first step is evaluating the patient 
<clears throat> excuse me, to see if there's there's end organ damage or suspicion for same that it would actually warrant aggressive workup or admission. Right. And along those same lines, I, I, I do think that the most important thing is making sure that you trust the reading that you got as well, that the blood pressure was taken correctly. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So feet on the floor, patient should be quiet, cuff should be appropriate sized. And I can't say that always happens in my practice. Hmm. So I, I do a fair amount of repeating blood pressures after someone's cooled off for five minutes. So I would certainly put that up there with your, as part of your triage. Stuart, any, anything to add? Uh, nope. I'm good. <laughs> okay. Are you going to not talk today? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> okay. I like me blood pressure. Uh, all right, Paul. It, so let's say you're in the office, you're seeing somebody, a uh, typical patient in probably middle age, they have diabetes, they have high blood pressure, their blood pressure is in the 180s over low 100s. What's, what's your next step there? So I think, I think part of it is gestalt, right? So it's, it de- really depends on your familiarity with the patient, I think is, is a good place to start. Mm-hmm. So I, I, whether this is reflective of my management or not, I have a fair number of patients who've been to my office a number of times who have blood pressures in the 180s over the one teens. And I, I feel like that's significantly different from a patient that you have no prior knowledge of, you don't really know all that well, who shows up with that same measurement. I feel right. like those things, that affects your triage to some extent. So if this is someone that you're familiar with, this is where he rides, there's either no non-adherence or some other known driver of the blood pressure reading, I feel like it's, you know, it's, it's what one of my colleagues describes as, as an acute recognition of a chronic problem. You know, you're seeing this right. number and it's not a number that's occurring isolation. It's not an acute thing that's happened all of a sudden, which would be alarming. This is something that's kind of where they lived and probably to some extent they're acclimated to it versus a patient that you've never met before who's coming in who says, you know, his blood pressure is 180 over 120. And yeah, sure, I get chest pain sometimes. I feel like those patients you're sort of obligated to handle a little bit differently, if that makes any sense. I'm not sure if you guys feel differently or not. No, I, I, I agree with what you're saying here. Well, what Paul was saying about if the person is a known entity, I think that that kind of gets into the, the point where the ER, to, to them, almost everyone is not a known entity. And that's right. why they have to handle things a little bit differently than we do. Okay, Paul, so let's say you have a patient that is not a known entity and their blood pressure is in the same range, uh, 180s over 1 teens, and maybe they have a headache, maybe they're feeling a little anxious, probably because you just told them their blood pressure is 180s over 1 teens. First of all, uh, do you believe that their headache is related to blood pressure? And second of all, what's going to be your basic workup that you, that you would do in the office or I guess if you're in the ER, what would you do? Uh, probably the office in the ER, and this is just for me, probably would, would vary just because of the resources available to me. But, mm-hmm. but so, you know, this patient says, so to answer your first question, you know, there's this perception, I think, among patients, and even among some physicians, that there's a, a correlation between headaches and high blood pressure. And I think we've all heard the patient who says, well, yeah, I know my blood pressure is high. You know, I know I haven't taken my medications because then I get a headache. And yet there, I, it's, I don't know that there's a whole lot of evidence for that. And in fact, I've even seen a study that actually shows there's not really a correlation between those two things. Unless, you know, the caveat being is unless their blood pressure is so high that they're in, having a hypertensive crisis and they're having end organ damage that happens to be in their brain, then, then, then you've got trouble and you should be dealing with that slightly differently. But I think the, the vague headache that you kind of have that maybe is related to your blood pressure, I think is more an anecdotal thing rather than having any evidence behind it. And, and I think the, the, the articles that I've read don't do us any favors in that they, they often will list headache as symptoms of severe hypertensive or uh, severe hypertension or hypertensive urgency. And I couldn't find anywhere where they, that's been conclusively proven that they, they go together. 
And but on 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 the other hand, if someone's presenting with a headache and their their BP is high, that doesn't necessarily mean they have hypertensive emergency. I think you have to ask yourself what came first, mm. the headache or the high blood pressure. I think with a lot of our patients that that we see who are who are presenting with headaches, it's probably the headache that came first. And so, Paul, what would what would your basic workup be? Let's say in the office for starters. So, and and I and I'm sorry to be cliched about it, but cliche is kind of my jam. Um, you know, they, they, it's so do first of all the good history and the good physical. So find out if the patient is ordinarily treated for high blood pressure, if they are currently having any pain at all, if they've been, um, you know, if they just drank seven gallons of water before coming to your office for whatever reason, <laughs> and then the, the physical exam is that's where you start to look for the things that might suggest end organ damage at some point. So I believe it or not, really do a, a fundoscopic exam. Um, you know, you listen for the cardiac exam. Do you hear an S four? Do you hear any evidence of, of what might be an acute heart failure, you know, the pulmonary exam is there evidence of pulmonary edema. And then in terms of the history, you know, it's sure you can ask about headache. You can ask about vision changes, things that might suggest a neurologic issue, the shortness of breath, you know, lower extremity edema, the kind of stuff that makes you worry that this is not just your bread and butter, uncontrolled resistant hypertension. This is, we've now progressed in actually organ damage that's happening acutely. And so I think you're first guided by your physical examination, your history. And then in terms of the workup that at least I have available to me, probably an EKG at the very least, um, Again, to make sure there's not anything terribly acute going on. Um, and above me on that, you know, there's no, I don't have the capacity for stat lab draws or that kind of thing in my office. I'm not sure if you guys have uh, have different resources. Yeah, we do. At CashLack, we have a, a limited capability. We have a, we have a nurse that's available to draw draw stat labs and monitor patients that aren't in distress, and we can we can get some of that cooking there. So sometimes we'll do some of the limited workup. I think that like the good physical exam you're talking about. And, and I know you do the retinal exam because you were like the only person in residency that actually carried around the pocket, uh, ophthalmoscope and the otoscope. Wait, I have one of those. <laughs> well, you weren't in my residency class. So oh, that's, oh, oh yes. Know. Yes. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> so we were clearly both the coolest people in our residencies. So I, I, I want to kind of backpedal a second here. So I, I just want to let you know about this, this study here. I, th- I find this somewhat interesting. This is a 1995 study that looks at, uh, it's, it's actually looking at male physicians ages 40 to 84. It studied 22,701 physicians, so quite a, quite a bit, and it analyzed them for, ver- for various risk factors, looking at risk factors for cerebrovascular disease, heart disease, um, and cardiovascular disease, and uh, grouped them by history of hypertension and then associated migraine and mi- non-migraine headaches. So essentially, there was no association with those patients had increased risk factors and were diagnosed with hypertension versus those who were not. There was no clear association whatsoever. It's a fairly large uh, study here, um, and it, it, there's actually a, an, an, a, a, a portion here from UpToDate that specifically states that there is a common belief, particularly among patients, that hypertension can cause headaches, and essentially it dispels that rumor. That is definitely good information. I, I, uh, maybe I'll keep that a copy in my desk so that when patients tell me they have a headache because of hypertension, I can show it to them. <laughs> Case solved. <laughs> I was going to say, Paul, so let's say you have someone that you, let's say you have someone that does have high blood pressure, you're a little worried about it, and you're trying to bring it down in the office. What are your go-to agents, if if any? Are you ever administering blood pressure uh, medications in the office, or do you always send them over to the ER for if they need an oral medication? So, and, and we may need to cut this part out, <laughs> but really neither, if I'm being perfectly honest. Um, you know, if, if they're 
if I'm going to start a medication, and this is true, I, th- I think on the inpatient side of things as well, and I, I think we're going to talk about more about this later, it's going to be something that I'm probably going to do on a long-term basis. So I will either up-titrate something they're already on or start an agent that I would use as part of their outpatient regimen. And this is for, just to be 100% clear, this is for urgency and not for emergency, which I think is a talk for a different day, right? Yeah. So so for someone who has what we're going to call asymptomatic, you know, a severe hypertension, but, you know, we don't think they're actually having end organ damage, I will... I will just go with the usual sort of JNZ8 recommendations or up titrated medication that they're already on. Uh, if I, you know, really my threshold for referring to the ER for possible admission is if, if I think they need to work up to actually evaluate for end organ damage. And those are those people who have symptoms that are not quite clear, who are new to me or, you know, who are not known entities. So what, how is how's that different for you? Because it sounds like you guys actually have some in-office medications and resources that you use. What do you guys do differently? To be honest, in the past four years, I, I, I don't even know other than doing what you said, which is going either adding a medication that I plan to keep on long term, or or uh, or going up on something they're already on. I, I generally am not reaching for uh, something like a clonidine or a captopril or, or a labetalol in the office. I just don't. There's very few situations where I really think that's warranted because I'm going to want to monitor that person probably longer in that's in that case and so those patients that i think need treatment i'm i'm usually going to send to the er if 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 i'm that worried i think that's exactly right because there's always the concern about lowering the blood pressure too quickly if there is you know, and and so if you're going to do something acutely and you think acute work is needed, then it should be done in a supervised setting. And, and quite frankly, you know, the setting that I work in in an outpatient clinic, I just don't have the capacity to do that as safely as I could do in the emergency right. department, which is right across the street from me. Hey, check this out. Here's an here's an article from 2002. Looks at uh, 22,685 adults from Norway, and basically, so the conclusions in this study were. In the first prospective study of blood pressure and the risk of headache, high systolic and diastolic pressures were associated with a reduced risk of non-migranous headache. So the blood pressure actually helped the headaches, helped prevent headaches in that study. I I, I guess so. Okay. So still uh, very, very inconclusive. (laughs) and still Wildly helpful. No no evidence that that the headache is caused by blood pressure. Now, I'm going to find an article that shows there is an association. Yeah. Okay, so just kind of to recap where we are here, in the office, if if you are going to treat, we kind of recommend a good physical exam, maybe an EKG. If they have high blood pressure, you're of course going to want to make sure they're compliant with their medications. You might want to go up on an existing medication or add a medication for the long term. And I think it's totally reasonable if the patient's asymptomatic to have a short-term follow-up, something like 24 to 72 hours. And if you have a reliable patient, they have a blood pressure cuff at home, I will often tell them to check their blood pressure at home. If they develop, I'll give them the symptoms, chest pain. Um, if they develop shortness of breath or any any other symptoms that are new to go to the ER. But usually patients go home and I see them within a couple days and they're fine. Um, and I think you made you raised an excellent point uh, in terms of overall patient gestalt and how you manage them is the follow up component of the show. You know, if you if you trust them and you know they'll be able to come back to the clinic or they'll be able to call you and report a blood pressure, I think that changes your threshold for taking to the ER versus someone who you don't have faith will be able to get back or doesn't have the resources to check their blood pressure at home or perhaps doesn't have the insight to sort of recognize this might be this might be alarming. That that changes, I think, the dynamic also as to whether or not you refer to the ER or not. Right. And, and, you know, there's also the flip side of the coin. 
So I've actually had to transfer a patient to the ER with a blood pressure in the systolics 130s to 140s because they're having actually hypertensive emergency with, a, with even that low of a, of a systolic. They were living with a normal systolic in the range of 90 to 100, and they came in and were complaining of headaches, chest pain, actually ended up having an ischemic stroke. So it's very strange, but uh, you can also get hypertensive emergencies completely independent of what the actual uh, number is. And and the, that's a good point, and that's also the reason why if you read from a bunch of sources, most of the blood pressure cutoffs for hypertensive urgency and emergency are going to be different from one source to another and kind of vague in general. And the reason for that is because hypertensive emergency can pretty much occur at a wide range of blood pressures. And we've got to be careful about applying that on a to a population base. I mean, depending on where you set that cutoff, it's going to change your sensitivity and specificity. But what it comes down to is the patient in front of you, whether or not they're having symptoms to suggest hypertensive emergency versus urgency. So to go back to the medications that might be used orally in patients uh, patients with a potential um, with hypertensive urgency where you want to bring the blood pressure down in a monitored setting. This is something that I've done in my hospital practice where if the ER calls me for a patient and they want them admitted, probably the ER has already pushed something IV uh, even the, even if the patient doesn't have emergency. But if if they're asking me what, what I want to give them when I'm bringing, if the patient's already going to be admitted and they're coming up to the floor, I'll usually give them something that's short acting that I can repeat the dose at intervals overnight. And mm. those, those agents, I think labetalol is a decent choice. If they don't have kidney insufficiency, you can use captopril, you can use clonidine. So, so, so like IV hydralazine, right? <laughs> I, you guys know, I'm not a fan of hydralazine, uh, especially not IV uh, uh, and oral hydralazine as well. I think I, I know it's used a lot in hospital management, uh, by night float, but I, I don't <laughs> care for it. it. Causes rebound tachycardia. But it's, it's on the... It's and it's on. not a good long-term fix. Okay, fine. <laughs> it's on the order set. Yeah. Now, the next, the next thing that I think is going to be really helpful for people, so if you're a hospitalist or if you're a medical resident, you're on night float, this is the most common time that you get these calls. Patients on the wards, their blood pressure is really high, 170s, 180s, over 90s or 100s, and the nurse calls you asking what you want to do. And that that is where I commonly see mistakes being made. So right. Paul, how how did you approach that? Or how do you approach that? Yeah, yeah, how I, how I do and how I did are, are two wildly different things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so now now at least I'd like to think I'm wise enough that I would say thank you, I'll be by to assess the patient because I think that's the right answer. Um Probably as an intern, I, I thought if they were calling me, there had to be something truly alarming happening, and I would probably have opted to treat with something terrible, like like say a hydrolysis. Well, not terrible, but maybe not less than appropriate, we'll call it. But I, I think to do the patient um, justice, you're, you're obligated to go and actually evaluate why they would be having this high blood pressure in the first place. And in the inpatient setting, I think probably what you're going to be getting at is there's a lot of reasons to have high blood pressure that are not essential hypertension or poorly treated hypertension. So pain being a big driver. You have your post-op patients that have had mm-hmm. gallons of IV fluids dumped into them. Um, and, re- and just general discomfort, you know, withdrawal is certainly something to be looking forward to, you know, it's assessing an alcohol history. There's a lot of reasons to have high blood pressure that's not just high blood pressure. Oftentimes it's a symptom, not not the diagnosis, right. if you know what I mean. How- so I think just assessing that first before doing anything else is, right. is the most important thing. How about just the Q4 vitals themselves? And <laughs> yeah. I'm getting woken oh, right, up. Right, right. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. Your vital signs induced uh, sleep apnea induced hypertension. Is oh, that yeah. What you're talking about, about the, the <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah. You're getting a blood draw on one arm and having the blood pressure to take it in the other. Like it's just, you don't have a chance to win. So, yeah. It's, it's, it's good to look at the patient first. It's yeah. Vihisa. Well, when we were talking in a pre recording, Stuart coined the term uh, vital signs induced sleep apnea induced hypertension yes. when the, the yes. vital signs are effectively acting as sleep apnea and inducing hypertension in <laughs> the patient. Visay. Visaya, uh, <laughs> I, I like it. Visaya. I definitely, uh, Paul, you mentioned that withdrawal, and and I certainly have missed, uh, probably due, due to my general naivety, I I missed uh, getting tox screens on patients that were definitely like, you know, like people that were like, no, I don't do cocaine, and then I just got tox screens on everyone. It just little grandma came in. I eventually, positive. I eventually did, but <laughs> as an in, as an intern, a couple a couple slipped by me until my my upper years. Like that person's definitely on cocaine. I'm like, oh, <laughs> eventually see like one or two positive, and just order on everyone. Yeah, but they have such kind eyes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you'd be surprised what you find. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, Paul. So what what would be a good choice? So you go in, you accept, you assess the person. They don't seem to be in pain. They're not necessarily volume overloaded, and uh, blood pressures blood pressures up. Is there any any situation now where you are grabbing for a medication um, in the inpatient setting? So and I, I, not to hedge too much, but it depends on what role I'm serving. Probably if I'm the night float, I don't know that I'd be overly aggressive about doing anything. But if I'm if I'm the primary team, I would probably again. Uh, like we talked about before, if I'm going to start something, it's going to be something I would continue in the long term. So right. I would not just treat the number with something that's short acting so that I can avoid a phone call for the next four hours. I would increase the dose of something they're on or, or start an agent that would be appropriate even in the outpatient setting to control their blood pressure. In the hospital, I feel like a lot of residents particularly favor the calcium channel blockers because they're sort of uh, kidney neutral and you don't have to worry about um, impacting the creatinine too much. And I, I think that's probably a fine choice. Um, but if you have agents already on board, you know, play with those. But I don't, I would not just treat the number itself is the point that I think we should make over and over and over again. Right. And at one time, uh, this is, might be getting a little into the weeds, but one time where I've, I would tell my team, if it, if you're worried about the dosing, say it's a, it's a, a 6 a.m., 6 p.m. dosing, and it's, it's kind of an odd time, that might be where I use a short acting agent just to bridge them until we're going to, go up on the on the dose the next day of something that they're taking chronically, uh, especially if you're night floating, you're not sure what the team might want to do. But you, you definitely should, there's, uh, there's very few situations that I can think of where you would ever be, be needing to push an IV medication when you get that call from the nurse, unless there is a true hypertensive emergency, in which case you should be transferring that patient to the, to the CCU or the ICU and uh, probably doing that with a drip in a controlled, in a controlled manner. So some, I've seen some of these services, they actually have IV hydralazine ordered like Q6 hours PRN for blood pressure above X. It's, it was some, some hospitals have it in their standard order set, which is unfortunate. Yeah, it's crazy. May as well just put nitroprusside in your standard (laughs) order set. Right. Right. Because I mean, take three baby, I mean, three giant steps back. So if you're not treating hypertensive, crisis for not treating emergency and end organ damage what exactly are you trying to accomplish by treating hypertension so it's it goes back to like you're you're doing long-term prevention at this point if you're not actually worried about end organ damage it's so like gosh just, darn it start no the utility. statin now start the statin <laughs> right exactly <laughs> so there is and and the majority of the cases that you deal with and uh the, the best numbers i have for you are from i believe it's a 1996 study it was done in Italy in an emergency department. It was about 500 patients, and we'll link to this in the show notes, but they they did look at 
those 500 patients or so, and about 75% of those patients who presented with severe hypertension had hypertensive urgency, and the other 25% were found to have some sort of hypertensive uh, emergency, whether it was an acute stroke or heart failure. But I think in my practice, those numbers, uh, 75% having urgency, 25% having emergency, that's probably, um, if you're in the outpatient setting, it's probably going to be even more uh, heavily favored towards urgency than that. And if you're getting called by the ER, you can kind of keep those numbers in mind as a rough estimate. But the majority, vast majority of the patients are not going to need a drip. They're not going to need aggressive lowering of the blood pressure. And you can lower the blood pressure over the next two to three days safely. And there shouldn't be a rush. It's There's actually a really interesting article. Um, there's actually a couple of interesting articles. But there's, there's one study looked at um, the number. So actually sending patients with asymptomatic severe hypertension to the emergency department and the outcomes of those things. And it turns out those patients you send, not surprisingly, tend to get admitted more often. But in terms of actual outcomes, it doesn't seem to really make that much of a difference at all. So you're, you know, at the end of the day, the bottom line from this one paper that I looked at is you're going to get your patient probably admitted, but in terms of actually decreasing morbidity or mortality in the long term, probably not so much. And and the practical aspect there is there there is a medical legal concern. So you do have to, you do have to counsel the patient listen, based on all these things I'm seeing and list them out for them, I, I don't think this is a hypertensive emergency. If I send you to the ER, you're probably going to be there for a long time. You might even get admitted and you might be at risk for a lot of medical tests that could put you at harm in harm's way. So a lot of patients a lot of patients will take that as a pass to go home and, and you just kind of tell them what to look out for. And that's how I practice. I, I think I'm relatively conserva- um, conservative. I don't know. I'm more aggressive about sending people home is, is what I mean to say. Right. Conservative um, about admitting. And I tend to know my patients. At this point, I've been in the same practice for quite a while, yeah. so I know my patients pretty well and I'm, I'm a lot more comfortable sending them home. You know, I, I don't know very many patients who say, I'd love to be admitted please send me to the yeah. hospital right now. <laughs> I do have, I, there There are some. Well, okay. I, I think I ran into that more in re, in residency than I did as a staff though. Mm-hmm. Of course, that might have something to do with the patient population. I, I think that is heavily dependent upon the patient yes. population. We had we had good food in patients. <laughs> okay, guys. I think we've Br- Briefly done... though, I, I, I do want to mention one thing. So you had mentioned night float. Um one thing we need to keep in mind, too, is that if we have these these patients who seem to be spiking their BP at night, there is the phenomenon of sleep apnea that may be undiagnosed previously, and that needs to be accounted for as well, because typically patients with sleep apnea will spike at night because they have the relative hyperadrenergia. In fact, that's what drives the sleep apnea or drives the high blood pressure in sleep apnea. And so if you see that as a night float physician saying, ah, I'm going to think about this wisely, he may have sleep apnea, and you could pass that on to the, the day team, and that may actually help the outcome uh, down the road more so than just adding on an, an additional agent at that time. Or maybe they're on CPAP at home and somebody forgot to order that CPAP. There are other things to look at aside from just throwing a medication at it. Blood pressure is treated with other methods as well, aside from medications I can't talk today. And uh, that that you just reminded me of of my favorite article, which I'm sure you guys are sick of me talking about. The 1928 Archives of Internal Medicine article, yeah, you can where, about that one. where they were giving, where they were giving all sorts of interesting things for for treatment of blood pressure. So this is I of Newt. Just <laughs> very briefly, this was an article from, like I said, 
1928, where at the time there was really no effective blood pressure medications. And this is where they were describing the articles titled The Syndrome of Malignant Hypertension. And the things they were using, they were, they were treating hypertension with warm baths, sodium nitrate, and phenobarbital. And out of the 81 cases, almost all the patients died at one to two years later. And these were patients admitted to the hospital with blood pressures in like the 200s over 120s or 140s. And they, they had nothing to offer them. So they would discharge them with similar blood pressures after they tried all these kind of yes. <laughs> wacky therapies. Eye of newt, toe and, of frog, and ear of leper. My point there is that that this is the reason this was called malignant hypertension, and the reason that we have to look for end organ damage and worry about this is because this was a had a very poor prognosis before we had good blood pressure agents, and these patients were not doing well. Well, that's you know it's it's interesting, and in some of the reading that I've done, I can't remember if we talked about this before or not, but you know, it's heart failure used to be invariably fatal, like pretty darn quickly. And it was because we just didn't know how to treat high blood pressure. So you'd have this rip raging hypertension, you'd go into this rapid onset of heart failure, and then you would die. And now, now that we've gotten kind of good at treating blood pressure, but not perfect at it, we now have sort of a slower progression of disease. Now heart failure is a chronic state rather than an acute state. And now we're sort of managing it as a chronic condition. So in part, our treatment of blood pressure that's gotten better has actually created far more heart failure patients is, is a theory that I've run. I like that theory. And theory. I, I think that's a good ending point. And Paul, I'd ask you uh, to do the difficult job of trying to kind of sum up the, the take-home points for our listeners here. I, I may need your guys' help for this, but I, I think that the first one is, is know the patient that you're dealing with. So be able to differentiate in the office between hypertensive urgency and hypertensive emergency. So be comfortable in your evaluation for end organ damage. And if you're not comfortable in your evaluation, then that patient probably merits uh, at least ER evaluation. I, I think the other thing that we spend a lot of time talking about is if you're going to change or increase the blood pressure medication, and again, this is sort of more, this is in the setting of hypertensive urgency, not emergency. It's probably far better to use something that you're going to use in the long term or change a medication that they're already on rather than trying to treat just a number acutely. And sort of along those same lines, uh, more on the inpatient side of things, when you're evaluating for someone for hypertension, um, always think of causes of secondary hypertension, which are really, really common in hospitalized patients. And whether that is the vital sign induced sleep apnea or whether it is pain or whether it is uh, iatrogenic volume overload or alcohol withdrawal, there's just a bazillion things that can cause elevated blood pressure that are not essential hypertension on the inpatient side of things. So check for those things first before just treating the number. I found it. Um, I found it. Yep. Yep. I found it. The best article for blood pressure and headache. So it's from 2015, the European Journal of Neurology inverse relationship largest perspective population-based study you, you got a link to this Stuart. I, I did paul i think you nailed the take-home points i don't really think we need to add to that Stuart, do you okay. agree <laughs> Stuart Stuart was reading his uh, headache article so i don't think he heard any of them no. but i promise you they were good yes this has been another episode of the curbsiders bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole brain hole you can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show, because we mentioned all of them this time, Stuart, yeah, I know. <laughs> at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and don't forget to leave us a review. We are slowly climbing into the double digits. We're, we're, we're past it. 12 reviews. 13. <laughs> and I think 13 we're up to two and a half reviews. stars. All right. We're getting so there, guys. So keep listening. 
And uh, we we seriously, though, do want to provide you guys with a great show, uh, high-value topics that are going to help you change your practice. So please email us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com and tell us one thing you love or hate about the show or just recommend a guest or topic for the show. We certainly want to hear from you. You can follow us also you can also follow us on our pages on Facebook, LinkedIn, Google Plus, or on Twitter at the Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. <laughs> and this is Paul Williams. Good night. <laughs>